The NFL draft may be over, but the Ringer NFL show isn't going anywhere. On Mondays, join Kevin and Nora as they look ahead to the 2021 season. And on Wednesdays, check out Flying Coach Season 2 with NFL Network's Peter Schrager and Rams head coach Sean McVay. The two longtime friends are joined by guests from around the sports and entertainment world to discuss the latest NFL news, tell stories from their careers, and break down the game from their unique perspectives. Check out the Ringer NFL show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm the staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today... As always, our Ringer staff writer, Zach Cram. Hit, say hello, Zach. Hello. And the Ringer's preeminent expert in a man who hits weak ground balls to second base, Ringer staff writer, Ben Lindbergh. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing all right. He also hits many 500-foot-plus home runs. He didn't do... I got a text from from a friend of mine uh, during the, the All-Star game. He's like, is this what everybody's so excited about? And I had to explain <laughs> that, like, he doesn't do You've this. You've never most been of the time. excited about him. I, that's not true. I just look like I'm not excited about him because I can keep my pants on while I'm talking about him, <laughs> unlike certain other people. Uh, it's just, it's all relative, man. I love Shohei Otani. I've I never submitted said otherwise. An- I submitted an article for TheRinger.com in which I intended to include a hyperlink to a website, and instead I included a link to a photo on my desktop called Otani.jpg, and then I had to explain <laughs> to my editor why I had pictures of Otani on my desktop. But... You only have one Otani.jpg? <laughs> <laughs> that was the one I attached. Right. You didn't you didn't attach Otani 43.jpg though. That's the one of uh, of Otani in the muscle shirt that that gets circulated. Yeah, around. that's from his OnlyFans. Uh so yeah. Um so what uh one player I'm excited about is uh Kumar Rocker, the uh late of the Vanderbilt Commodores. I want, since we talked about the 2011 draft on last week's show, I want to take you back to an experience I had in the 2011 draft where I was watching my favorite college baseball player of the past 5 years drop like 10 spots further than than I expected him to go and he was rapidly approaching the Philadelphia Phillies who were who were drafting 39th overall. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about Jackie Bradley Jr., whom the Phillies passed on and went to the Boston Red Sox uh, with the next pick, two World Series titles later. Uh, we all know how that story ends. And I was going through the same thing on Sunday. Kumar Rocker, the preseason number one pick, had his uh, had his stock drop throughout the year as uh, he got nitpicked to death uh, as everybody was watching him pitch at Vanderbilt. But he's so cool. He's such a good pitcher. He's probably my favorite college baseball player. Uh, since like Thomas Eshelman, uh, hopefully he'll be a better pro player. I imagine he will, but he's sliding down the draft board and I'm like, Oh, is he going to drop to the Phillies at 13? Is he going to drop to the Phillies at 13? Is that even possible? And then the fucking Mets step up and take him at 10. And I want to die. And I want to know Bobby Wagner's thoughts on this. My thoughts are, I'm so happy that you're sad. Uh, I I do want to pause really quickly and just challenge the assertion that Jackie Bradley Jr. was the main point in two Red Sox World Series since then. You made it. <laughs> the insinuation there was that Jackie Bradley Jr. won those World Series for the Red Sox. Well, he won. He was the ALCS MVP in uh, in 2018. As we all remember, the ALCS uh, MVPs yeah. from every single he, he year. He did not take a postseason at bat in 2013. That doesn't matter. He was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm thrilled about. He's a great glue guy. I'm just yeah. really good in the clubhouse. I'm thrilled about Kumar. Well, well, look, knowing what you know about Jackie Bradley Jr., what what about him makes you think he wasn't a great glue guy in that clubhouse? <laughs> no, I was serious. 
Well, tell me about Rocker because he was one of the few names I knew in this draft because he was actually something of a celebrity for an amateur baseball player. He was the presumptive top pick for a while, and we went from presumptive top pick to almost falling out of the top 10, and I was unaware of what happened in between. And all I know about Rocker in his present state is what Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs told me on my other podcast, and Eric didn't sound so surprised that he fell that far and didn't seem to think that it was the steal of the draft or anything. But are you higher on Rocker than the consensus? Well, I think I'm higher on Rocker than Eric is. Um, Eric obviously knows way more about prospects than than I could ever hope to learn. But uh, it's I think that there's something to once you're the number one, once you're projected to be a, a a high pick and you're a name and you're on TV more than any other college baseball player, except maybe your, your teammate, Jack Leiter, uh, people are going to start to see flaws and they're going to start to overthink things. And I think there were, you know, there were times when rockers command came and went, he got hit around a couple times, but also like the sec is a tough league. Like, Teams are going to get to him every so often, but I just, I love the mound presence. I love the, just the combination of of stuff and like, like bounciness for lack of a a better way to put it for a pitcher, his size. I think, you know, you can uh, ding him because, because he's not projectable anymore. He's so big at such a young age. Maybe there's not that extra velocity spike to, to come, but he's also like, you know, he's also mid to upper nineties with, uh, you know, with plus secondary stuff and he's been tested on, on every, uh, level. And I think, you know, you're not going to see Jackson Job's worst start of the season, but Kamar Rocker's worst start of the season was on TV. And so like, that's, I mean, that's not going to be a consideration for scouts who are going to see a lot more of it than, or a lot more of a, uh, uh, a draft prospect than, than your average fan is going to. But I think that, he's suffered from being from being picked over that much. And I think, he, you know, he's also suffered from from being the teammate of of the other best college uh, college pitcher in this draft, Jack Leiter, who's even better this year, who you know doesn't have Rockers track record of two and a half years of the 19th strikeout, no hitter in the NCAA tournament of College World Series, most outstanding player. But like the two of them tied for first in Division one in strikeouts this year. So I don't I don't know. I think that. Uh, it, the other reason he fell is because he was expensive and we saw all, you know, he doesn't come from a, you know, he's the son of a, a coach and a football coach and former NFL player. Like, you know, he's not going to be the kind of kid who is going to see an underslot draft bonus and think, wow, this is more money than, than I could ever comprehend making. Like he's going to be a tougher sign. And I think that's the, the big thing is on merit. He's a you know top five or six pick and maybe fell a little bit once teams decided that they didn't want to allocate all their draft money on, on one player. And, you know, the Mets reportedly uh, managed to float him to 10. I think that it had less to do with a a fall on merit than it did the, the Mets picking their guy and finding a way to get him there. And like part of the reason I'm so mad about this is he's going to be awesome. And he's going to be a superstar uh, if he's, if he's any good in New York. So I'm yeah, like, (laughs) well, I look forward to him dominating as a member of the Mets rotation and beating up on the Phillies and then inevitably hurting himself and having non-setback setbacks for several seasons. Great, Ben. That's really, <laughs> that's really nice. Uh, so the other thing that happened this week, the All-Star game. And we were talking about this while the home run derby was going on. Obviously, the the headline moment was was Shohei Otani in the in the home run derby and and pitching and leading off, which has obviously never been done in the All-Star game before. Uh, we were talking about when was the last time the sports world seemed so intent on on watching a baseball game? Like it's gotta be since what? Since the uh since the Cubs were in the World Series, something like that, right? Yeah, I think so. That was maybe the high point of the rest of our lifetimes, just given the history involved and I think that game seven had the highest TV ratings in decades for any baseball game. But I, I don't know what the ratings were for this all-star game. I don't particularly care given the the broader contextual changes to how people watch television nowadays. But I think in terms of the sports world, I saw so many people just online saying, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I'm tuning in because of Otani. And he didn't necessarily meet those lofty expectations because he lost in the first round of the Derby, although that was a great 
round going to two tiebreakers with Juan Soto. He didn't hit a home run in the All-Star game itself, but he also threw a 1-2-3 inning. He was the centerpiece of all the events. And just seeing the reactions of other players talking about him, Fernando Tatis and Vlad uh, Vlad Jr., who is the All-Star game MVP, talking about how impressed they are by Otani and <laughs> how they want to just know how he does it, I think underscored how impressive it is. Because it's one thing for all of us to sit here and say, wow, look at what Otani's doing. But we couldn't match anything that any of these players are doing. So to hear the best players in the game say they don't know how he's doing it either, I think really emphasizes just how special a season he's having. Yeah, it was just a feel-good week all around, I think. Maybe a little less so now that we know that players were possibly catching COVID from each other while they were there. But we'll get to that. But other than that, with the Home Run Derby, the field being as appealing as it was, and then really just... The young stars, the international stars that were on hand here, even with some players who were hurt or were not attending All-Star Week for various reasons, it's just such a great collection of young talent that there was no way even MLB could screw this up. And there were just like a lot of good vibes and good feelings. And a lot of it did have to do with Otani because even I will sometimes not be really riveted by All-Star Week and I'll check out early in the Home Run Derby and maybe I won't even watch the All-Star Game or part of the All-Star Game. And I watched just about every second of both of these events and really enjoyed it right down to the cursing closers mic'd up. I mean, there were so many moments that, made this fun and worthwhile. But see, I I think it's not just Otani and not just the players. It is the format. The introduction of the bracket format with the timed instead of outs rounds in the Home Run Derby, I haven't turned it off at any point since then. And I used to, like the the Josh Hamilton 2008 Home Run Derby stood out uh, special to me because that was something that I made sure to tune in the whole time for. That's not something I I used to do for every home run derby. It was kind of dull. It would drag on. But since the introduction of these new rules, what, five, six years ago, I haven't turned it off at any point. And I think we give the players some credit, but we have to give MLB credit that one of the few times we will will on this podcast, I think, because that is a legitimately great rule change that uh, has just made the entire all-star showcase seem so much better. Yeah, I compared it to the shot clock in the NBA the other night because it's like it revolutionized what was, like you said, a really kind of dull event and made it like comparable to the slam dunk contest. And I, you know, it's, it's injected so much excitement and tension and really made it appointment TV. Ben, I want to I want to circle back to something you said about how you don't always watch the All-Star game. And I think that that underscores a point that the All-Star game isn't for us. It's not for people who cover the game or the people like the people who are on Twitter with MLB.tv open all the, you know, all the time, you know, posting gifts and, and freaking out about every single, uh, bullpen move from, you know, the, the twins tigers game to like Mets Marlins. Like this is a minority, you know, these people are, are diehards and the all-star games for casuals. It's for people who maybe watch, like they watch their own team and every so often catch the Fox Saturday game or Sunday night baseball and then watch the World Series. And the overwhelming majority of them, particularly people who work on who live on the East Coast and you know work a nine to five, might not have seen Otani ever. And this was their first this home run derby and, and all-star game were, were their first um first real exposure to him, in addition to half a dozen other guys who who were featured, you know, from from Soto to to Tatis to Vlad Jr., you know, who maybe have had limited exposure uh elsewhere in the um in the the national sports landscape. And so like this is a showcase. And I think for as much as as much crap as we give the league for deservedly on on a lot of important issues, I think they have done a really good job of marketing these young stars or letting or I'll, I'll put it this way, letting these young stars market themselves because the the personalities that are on display and, you know, what sticks out is like these guys like what they're doing. It, you know, it's one thing to hear John Smoltz complain about, you know, say that, you know, baseball isn't as good as as it was uh, 25 years ago. Like Fernando Tatis doesn't think that or he doesn't seem to, you know, Juan Soto doesn't think that. Yeah. Otani doesn't think that. And the the joy that you know, the joy, the excitement, um, 
you know, the the nerdiness that a lot of these guys have, like the real appreciation for, uh, you know, for for the Im- impressive stuff that that their colleagues are doing on the field. It's really infectious, and it's you know, it's an unironic. How can you not be romantic about? about baseball. I think that like this was this was a really incredible showcase for for a sport that I think really needed a perhaps a literal shot in the arm. Um I'm sorry I was headed straight for that idiom and couldn't do anything to to change where I was going. Should have saved that for the segue to yeah, the next segment. Um, but Zach, please give me credit I, for doing that when we go to the when we go to the vaccine crisis. I think that there is that perception that every failing of baseball to connect with a national audience is MLB's fault, that MLB does a bad job of marketing the sport or marketing its stars. And that's certainly true to an extent, but also I don't think it's as simple as Rob Manfred just deciding to make fetch happen and you tweet something about some young star or you put an ad out and suddenly that star is a household name. Like I think MLB is battling these larger institutional problems and the way that people follow sport, follow baseball as a regional sport these days and just how much competition there is from other sports and from other sources of entertainment. I mean, there's so many things working against baseball that were not working against baseball half a century ago or a century ago. So I think some of that is just inevitable and is not something that a marketing executive can just decide to snap their fingers and fix. But The league has been gifted with this really just incredible, charismatic, historically talented group of young players who, as you said, are pretty good at marketing themselves and have more ways to do that now just through social media, etc. So I think they would have to screw up horribly not to make the most of this. And I think they have. And I think they've kind of found the right tone for the All-Star game because it wasn't clear for a while who it was for or what its purpose was because clearly it doesn't have the same juice that it used to back before interleague play when there were real league rivalries where you didn't get to see these players very often, where there was a sense of league pride and players maybe didn't move between leagues as often as they do now. So you're not going to get that same rivalry and that same sense of intrigue. And they tried to keep that up with the this time it counts and the home field advantage and all of that nonsense. And it was always just an awkward marriage of exhibition game where you're trying to get everyone into the game and game with actual stakes that is going to help decide your marquee event at the end of the season. So now that they've given up on that and they've just accepted that this is for fun and it's mostly meaningless, but it can still be a high point of the summer, you know, things like tweaking the rules so that Otani could play both ways so that he could essentially be treated as two players and pitch and hit. In the past, if we were still in the this time it counts era, maybe they wouldn't have done that because they would have felt pressured to make it a real game or maybe they wouldn't have had Liam Hendricks mic'd up during the game. But now I think they accept that this is what it's for. It's just a showcase for these players and their personalities. And it's more fun just to watch them hanging out with each other, really, than it is to watch them competing. And so they're making the most of that. And I have always enjoyed the All-Star game, even if I wasn't always watching the Derby. I did always like watching the All-Star game because even though, as you said, Ben, interleague play exists so I can see players from the the Padres and the Rangers playing against each other uh, at multiple points throughout the year, I have always enjoyed watching the best players compete against the best players. When Kershaw pitches to Trout, obviously neither of them were at the All-Star game this year, but I've always enjoyed watching those at-bats because unlike say, the Pro Bowl in football or the basketball All-Star game, at least until recently, when players really, you could tell, were going like 50%. In baseball, it's hard not to go at least 90% or better. Like Maybe pitchers aren't hitting 100 miles an hour all the time, although Otani notably uh, did that on Tuesday. But like a batter is always going to be trying 100%, and a fielder is always going to be trying 95 or 100%. So it's not like you're seeing the drop-off in effort that you are in other sports. So I've just always enjoyed watching the best players compete against the best players. I know that's not necessarily the case that everyone feels that way, but it's always been cool. And especially when we have this new generation of stars who are by and large all participating in this event, then that just elevates it even further. You get the the best of both worlds with the baseball all-star game where Vladimir Guerrero is hitting, what was it like a 460 foot home run? Like something that's 
like awe-inspiring to even people who only kind of like baseball, but also like, you know, he's grounding out in the, in the first inning and then going over to hug Max Scherzer after he Charlie Brown him with a line drive. Like it's the, the mix between, wow, these are great athletes at the, at the top of their game, but also like, this is just, we're just hanging out with these guys. And I think like the last thing I'll say about the value of the all-star game, like maybe this is too earnest. I don't know. I watched Ted Lasso last night. So maybe, maybe I'm just not a cynical person anymore, but, uh, it's cool to 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 have the league or the sport put its biggest like put these guys out there and say this is the best we have like these are our leading lights and here they are for one night like you know like the Oscars or something like that I think that that there's value in in uh, in presenting that and sort of you know giving giving the fans a spectacle and I think we got a spectacle this week and I think it was. You know, up until like Ben alluded to uh, the trip home, um, I think a, a really, really positive moment and a, a good, you know, it, it it made me feel good about the sport and the and the league. Oh, and the other thing is Rob Manfred at his, his press conference said that the runner on second rule and the seven inning double headers are on their way out. Like I, we almost forgot to mention that. Like <laughs> it's it's morning in America, my friends. Yeah, it's not quite morning because he subsequently walked back the second part of that, where in an interview after that initial interview, he said, yeah, I really meant it about the seven inning double headers, but I was just kind of lumping that and what I call the zombie runner rule together. I'm softer on that one. So he said it remains to be seen whether that one will actually be phased out. Means that we... We put the conservative in office and then we <laughs> lobby him to move left, which is working real well for the Biden administration right now. It can't no reason it it can't work. Uh, yes, I hope that in we will not see office. that beyond this year. But until it is actually banished, I will not allow myself to fully get my hopes up. All right. So we've been tiptoeing around this. Uh, COVID is back. I guess it never really left, but uh, we were going to have one game last night. Yankees, Red Sox. Because why not? Because that's something we haven't seen before. Uh, but there's been a COVID outbreak on the Yankees. They're second since hitting the 85% threshold for uh, for Major League Baseball, loosening the uh, the restrictions around the team. This comes a couple days after the Phillies lost uh, Aaron Nola, Connor Brogdon, Alec Bohm, uh, and a couple other players to positive COVID tests. Matt Gelb of The Athletic posted, or he did, I you know, a, I think a really valuable, well-written article that just made me want to put my fist through a wall about the Phillies. I don't even want to call it a struggle to get to 85%. They seem to have given up on on getting uh, to that that margin because their players have been blaming nagging injuries on um, on vaccine side effects, and there's apparently an anti-vaxxer movement in their clubhouse. And this just you know underscores, one, the fact that this thing that we've decided is behind us is very much not, you know, California is on the verge of, of reinstituting a, a public uh, mask mandate, you know, and as, as we're talking about like, Oh, maybe the blue Jays can come home. It seems that we're backsliding because we, you know, we underwent all these restrictions, these restrictions that, you know, were barely a fig leaf, but in the hopes that we could minimize the damage until we got a vaccine. And now we've got a vaccine and people don't want it. And I'm going to let Zach talk before I start shouting. And it's not just the Phillies. There was a report, I believe, yesterday from SNY that the Mets, who are also uh, among the teams that have not reached the 85% threshold, are uh, not getting close there, even though, and I quote, club officials have made several attempts this season to convince players to get vaccinated, including making the case that an outbreak or even one positive test for an impact player could cost the entire team in a pennant race, so far those arguments have not been persuasive enough to players, but management has not given up, end quote. And I don't even know if I need to add any analysis to that, that the Mets are leading their division. The Mets have a good chance at the playoffs. They are getting players back healthy after spending an entire uh, the entire first half of the season working through injuries, and now they're running the risk of losing an entire swath of the team because they're not all getting vaccinated. And I'm not sure what, what else to do what else 
you have to do to convince the players. It's not it's not like literally the last major baseball championship that was handed out was decided by one team having to forfeit because half their team got fucking COVID during the semifinal. Like this just happened. It was in the news. And I don't understand. Like this is so there are two things that so much for not yelling. There are two things that I was really get say, under my so much skin for not yelling. They really get it under my skin about this. One is the the continuation. I don't. I almost don't blame players for saying, "Oh, it's a personal medical decision," because they've been taught their entire lives. All of us have been taught our entire lives that the most important factor in your success or failure as a human being, the most important determining determining factor in your life, is your personal choices and personal responsibility will save you. And that's because it. They're the people who create the structural factors in this co- country have a vested interest in hiding their influence on on every aspect of our lives. And they've obfuscated the fact that your personal choices have have consequences beyond your life, like because you don't get vaccinated, you can get somebody else sick because you don't get vaccinated in a very low stakes, uh, low grade kind of way. Um in the grand scheme of things, you don't get vaccinated. Your team forfeits the college world series semifinal or, you know, or it has to, to go without you for a world series game. And that could swing the title that influence, you know, influences hundreds of people within the organization and millions of people who have an interest in the organization. And the idea that, Oh no, like because fucking Newsmax or Pinterest knows more than the centers for fucking disease control, I'm not going to get this free, convenient, extremely low risk thing that could save my life and save the lives of people that I come in contact with. It's just, it's selfish. It's selfish. It's cowardly. And I, it absolutely, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how you can look your teammates in the face if you're the kind of person who makes that decision. Yeah, on the one hand, it's unsurprising that this is an issue in Major League Baseball because it's an issue in the country at large, and especially given the demographics of of Major League clubhouses, one would expect that this sentiment would be fairly prevalent. So the fact that... A lot of teams have gotten to 85% or more, you know, we're doing better than the country as a whole. So by that extremely low bar, good job baseball. But I think that obviously berating people or players on a podcast isn't going to persuade anyone or change anyone's mind. (laughs) No, but (laughs) it can be quite cathartic regardless, just because uh, there's no way to change people's minds, it seems at this point. And so all season, you know, as you said, we've had this rhetoric of, oh, it's a personal decision, or I'm waiting for, I'm gathering more information. I'm I'm waiting and seeing it. It's as if these players are conducting clinical trials in their spare time away from the field or something. And I don't know how many of them are full, I'm going to be a 5G hotspot if I take this vaccine, and how many of them are just, hey, I'm young and healthy, and some people have side effects to taking the vaccines, and if I had side effects, then... Maybe I'd miss a game or two, or I'd be at less than peak performance. Maybe it's just not worth my while. So probably not everyone who has chosen not to do it is full-on anti-vaxxer, but I think that it's semi-surprising just because of the clubhouse dynamics at play here in that obviously a lot of workplaces make vaccines mandatory, and that is something that MLB could consider. Of course, there are you know, union issues and collective bargaining issues that come into play there, but that is potentially an option to explore. But when you don't have it mandatory, and yet you have this situation where this fairly small number of people is together all the time for six or seven or eight months, it's strange. It's different from your typical office or, or workplace where you have your own cubicle, or your own office, and you go home and you don't see each other and you don't travel all over the country together. Players are around each other all the time. And there are these pandemic protocols that get relaxed if you clear the 85% threshold. And so I was sort of fascinated to see coming into the season just how much peer pressure there would be 
whether anyone would be regarded as a bad teammate if they didn't do this because of some nebulous objections to it or personal liberty or whatever it is when at the same time you're not only potentially endangering people but also you're inconveniencing your teammates who might have to wear masks around or you know not go out to restaurants or or whatever it it varies and it's varied over time about what the actual protocols are and some of those have been relaxed for players who are vaccinated but It's sort of a unique workplace environment, and yet even here where you would think that there'd be an enormous amount of pressure to go along with it to conform even if for whatever reason you don't think it's the obviously smart thing to do. And still, some players persist in not taking this. And you also have to wonder, with the trade deadline approaching, whether it even becomes a a factor from a trade value perspective. Like, if you're right above the 85% threshold, are you going to trade for the guy who refuses to get the vaccine, which could then plunge you back below that threshold? That would be something that might keep you from making that move. So it's become this competitive advantage argument, which is a good one. Like the competitive advantage is this that you don't get sick and you get inoculated against this life-threatening disease. But also from a competitive standpoint, it's, hey, we want to try to keep people on the field here. And this is a way to do that. Not that that's flawless, as we've seen with the Yankees, who were one of the first teams to reach that 85% threshold, but have still had some of these breakthrough cases. I I perhaps foolishly thought that that self-interest argument would be persuasive. But I I think, and I'll just say this quickly, the 85% threshold is not like some magical tier. Like, it's basically arbitrary. It's what they thought they could do relatively safely based on the buy-in that that they thought they could get. And so if you've got, if you're that 15% of the traveling party, like you can go out as the Yankees have learned twice now and spread that disease more freely to the vaccinated people on the team. So who, you know, aren't, aren't going to get hospitalized or die, but they've still got to be taken out of the lineup now. And I, I just, just like imagine being the typhoid Marion who, who gets your team sick during a pennant race, like leaving aside all the, shit i just yelled about i it's it's just such a a selfish way to to go about your life and mike i think you hit the nail on the head earlier not just with the recent college world series precedent but let's remember how the last mlb world series ended with justin turner getting removed in the last game because of a, a positive test and i'm not saying that that precedent is definitely going to recur but just because vaccines have now been widely available and a lot of teams have hit the 85% threshold doesn't mean there's no further chance of uh, of the ongoing pandemic upsetting uh, the pennant race in some form or another. So like the Yankees-Red Sox game was the first postponement in almost three months. So maybe there's weirdness around all-star travel that won't happen again. But again, we're seeing the ongoing and continuing effects. Yeah, and I'm sure that internally there are players who have put pressure on teammates, but again, it's a a difficult thing to navigate in that particular workplace where I think often, at least in the past, players would avoid some sensitive subjects and maybe not talk about politics, let's say, if you know that you are with someone who is on the opposite side of the political spectrum and yet you have to be their teammate, you have to be around them all the time, you might just steer clear of that conversation, you know, stick to the the polite dinner table stuff and stay away from religion and politics and now maybe stay away from vaccines because that has become politicized too. And so you don't hear many public comments of players being outwardly, openly frustrated or calling out other teammates by name. It's a lot of, well, you got to respect their decision, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that when a lot of those players say respect their decision, They don't mean respect it as in, I think this is a a smart thing to do. They mean respect it as in, well, I have to accept that I don't have the authority to compel this person to take the vaccine. So I respect their right not to. But, you know, there's got to be a little bit of bad blood. I think that in a clubhouse, people just get along and they can 
stiffer and maybe it's a little less polarized than the populace at large just because you are exposed to so many people from so many different backgrounds and there's no way to sequester yourself really in a a baseball clubhouse over the course of a long season. But there has to be a little bit of tension in some cases or at least people grumbling and griping when they're in groups of fellow vaccinated players. Get the fucking shot. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's transition from this literal life or death uh, issue to the pennant race, which is hotted up. Uh, There's two weeks until the trade deadline, guys, which uh, is certainly sneaking up on me, but we've got trade action for the very first time. Uh, Jock Peterson uh, is on his way from Chicago to Atlanta, uh, the Braves as we know, Vardy, uh, without the services of Ronald Acuna, who blew out his knee uh, shortly before the break, Jock Peterson, I, you know, I think he's a solid stopgap for uh, for a team in dire need of, of power from the outfield and, you know, didn't cost that much. The Braves are sort of on the the fringe of the playoff race. So, you know, if they go one and six this week, they could flip him, flip him again. I think that the, it's a, a pretty solid b- uh, piece of business for Atlanta and perhaps heralds the Cubs starting to dismantle that that championship roster uh, that they built. Yeah, the Cubs can't wait to tear this thing down. And so they didn't. And there will presumably be more moves made there, whether it's Chris Bryant or Craig Kimbrell or others. This is probably just the first domino. And I think that was probably always the plan for the Cubs. Otherwise, they wouldn't have traded you Darvish, where for a good chunk of the first half of the season, it seemed like all they were really lacking was you Darvish. And then they lost a bunch of games and the Brewers won a bunch of games and suddenly they were way out. And I wonder whether Jed Hoyer was on some level a little relieved because that had to be the plan all along. And to be fair, they have a lot of players who are on expiring contracts and are going to be hitting free agency. But it would have been nice if while they still had this remnant of the championship core together, they could have built around it and financed another real run rather than just waiting for them to play out the string or actually moving them before the end of the season. So there will be more Cubs transactions to come. And I think we, well, first, we're closer to the trade deadline than I think we usually are when actual notable trades start happening. And I wonder how much of that is because the draft was delayed by a little over a month this year and front offices were probably so focused on the draft. And now they'll be able to turn their attention fully to the deadline. But I put together a list of every player since Willie Adamas uh, who was actually a notable player. I trade love when in, you put in, together lists. <laughs> and Willie Adamas has really helped Milwaukee since Tampa shipped him off in mid-May. But ever since the Willie Adamas trade, here's the full list of players uh, who have been traded and have at least 20 innings pitched or 100 plate appearances this year. Pretty low minimums. Billy McKinney, Jake Bowers, Matt Whistler, Hunter Strickland, Jacob Barnes, Adam Simber, Corey Dickerson, Joe Panic, Tim LaCastro, Kelvin Gutierrez, Trevor Richards, and Rowdy Telez, all of whom are either light hitting backups or mediocre relievers. Whoa. So we haven't There's nothing seen... light hitting about La- Rowdy Telez. <laughs> uh this year he is like the rest of the Brewers uh other than Adamas, but uh the, none of those are really difference makers and I think Peterson, I mean he has been a below average hitter this year, but I think just platoon him and place him against right-handed pitchers and and he'll be an upgrade over what Atlanta has to offer right now and I think we'll probably see moves come much more fast and furious, which is uh, another topical reference uh, over the next couple of weeks, because I can imagine, given the state of the standings and, and the pennant race, 
that we'll see like some teams maybe waiting a, to see how the next two weeks develop to see whether they're buyers or sellers. I think the Yankees fit well there. They have series against Boston and Tampa and Boston again, so they could either jump back in the race and become full buyers or fall out of the race and maybe sell a couple players. But I think for most teams uh, at either the top or bottom of the standings, they know which direction they're in. And now that the all-star break has passed and the draft has passed, they're ready to make moves. Yeah, there are a couple teams that are kind of on that bubble where the next couple of weeks could actually be decisive and might chart their course toward buying and selling. They could kind of go either way right now. And the Braves are still in that category for me, even after adding Peterson as a stopgap, as a Acuna replacement. They could very well turn around and flip him if things don't go great over the next couple of weeks. And you might look at them and think, well, they're only four games back. And these are the defending division winners for the past few years. And a lot of people pick them as the preseason favorites. And it seems curious, perhaps, that their playoff odds at Fangraphs are in single digits now, even in the absence of Acuna. But I think there were some concerns about that team coming into the season that led me to pick the Mets. Not that I was extremely confident about that pick, but in some ways it's been weaknesses that I didn't even expect where I had concerns more about the pitching than the hitting and both have been problems to to varying degrees. So I think if you look at that division, it's pretty close, those teams at the top, and yet I still really like the Mets to pull away because they have gotten to this point being so shorthanded. And if you go to the baseball prospectus injured list ledger, they rank all the teams by the number of preseason projected wins above replacement that they have lost to injury this year. And the Mets are far and away on top of that list with more than eight wins above replacement lost to injuries. And they're starting to get those guys back with Carrasco rehabbing and J.D. Davis back and Syndergaard coming and various others who are either back or about to be back. So that four game deficit for the Braves, which doesn't look big, seems a lot bigger when you figure that the Mets are getting healthy and the Braves are not. Yeah, Ian Anderson uh, is dealing with some shoulder problems. Mike Soroka uh, hurt himself again, unfortunately. Uh, so what we put four Atlanta players on our 25 under 25 list, and now three of them are hurt. And that's just not a recipe for success, especially when, as I think we talked about before the season, what the Mets did in the offseason wasn't just uh, you know change ownership and add some high profile players, they also added a lot of depth and we're seeing the benefits of that now with like Taiwan Walker, who was a late signing, but made an all-star team and the ability to have major league quality depth for when the stars do get hurt, I think is so important uh, this season more than ever, perhaps just given all the injuries we've seen, but that's definitely an advantage in New York's column. New York. I don't know if this is relevant for the the playoff race. I didn't realize they they've scored the second fewest runs in, in baseball this year, and they're still in first place. I guess Jacob deGrom goes a long way. Um, they've obviously also played a few, few less games than some of their other, uh, some of their, their rivals. Um, so we're, I don't know. We're talking about the teams like the Braves not being out of it at, at three and a half games back. And it, there isn't a, t- or sorry, the Braves are four games back. Um, there's not a team that's out of the playoff picture currently that is closer than three and a half games to a playoff spot. And I, I'm, I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think because I'm not really sure where, where I come down on this. It, is that going to make for a boring deadline because the, there isn't a whole lot of stakes in the race or do we need the Yankees or the Blue Jays or, or the Phillies or one of these teams, one of these big market teams that that's out of it right now to, you know, win six of seven uh, coming out of the break in order to justify a move at the deadline. I think looking at the makeup of the races, a lot of it uh, centers on Oakland right now. I think in the American league, the top it always centers on (laughs) the top four teams i I think the white Sox are running away with the division Uh, i think houston and boston and tampa are all in really good position as well oakland is the second wild card team right now they lead seattle by three and a half games toronto cleveland and the yankees by four and a half games and the angels by five and a half games so that is five teams within reasonable striking distance so if oakland uh starts out the second half uh you know three and four over the first week And they also play a lot of the teams behind them. They play Cleveland, then they play the Angels, Seattle, 
San Diego and the Angels again. So that's not an easy schedule. So if they go three and four, if they go five and seven, then I think you'll see a lot of those teams angle to make moves. But if Oakland starts out like seven and one and creates more separation, I think that's where you're talking about, Mike. You could see some real difference because that's the one race that strikes me as close, not just between two teams, but between potentially half a dozen. Well, Ben, I'll, I'll put the second, like the other half of that, that assumption to you because the the playoff race is so so stratified there's such a clear break between the teams that are in it that are not does that mean that there's a there's none of the ambiguity over buyers and sellers or perhaps there won't be in 2 weeks time by the deadline and now that we're back to the normal the normal playoff uh format there's a huge incentive for a team like Tampa Bay or the Dodgers or the Padres to try to get out of those wild card spots. Like making the playoffs doesn't mean the same thing for everybody anymore. So is that enough incentive to to drive one of those teams to buy? Yeah, there are definitely going to be some matches here, I think. And there are definitely some prominent players who seem likely to be moved. There are also a lot of teams that are in the seller category that have already done a lot of their selling, whether last year or over the offseason, you know, the Pirates or the Rockies who have more players to move but have already moved some or, you know, teams like the Rangers or the Orioles or, you know, you could go on and on the Tigers like they're at various uh, they're at varying stages of their rebuilds and they've kind of done their teardowns already, which isn't to say that. They don't have anything left to move, but it's been somewhat strip mined already. But there are also at least a few teams, I guess, that we didn't necessarily anticipate being in this situation. So the Twins, for example, who were not expected to be a seller coming into this year and seem pretty motivated or or at least in a position where you would think they would be pretty motivated to sell at least some of their players who are not under long term team control. So I think. That could happen. And as you said, there are enough races where, you know, there are teams within striking distance or at least are trying to separate themselves from other good teams in their division that they would be fairly motivated to add to. Plus, there have been a ton of injuries this season. Putting aside all of the vaccine and COVID stuff we talked about, there have just been so many players hurt and hamstring tears galore. And so that's affected some bad teams as well as good teams, but some of the good teams have holes to fill. And so that gives them an extra incentive to to do something. So I think we're going to see moves. I, I don't know that things are set up for this to be the busiest deadline ever or anything, but I don't expect it to be completely dead either. How much do you think the new wild card matters? Because in the National League, for instance, I, I just talked about the American League. In the National League, the Dodgers, Giants, and Padres all have 90% or better playoff odds, but only one of them will avoid the wild card game. The other two will have to play each other. And I think, like, one, you want to upgrade your roster for the postseason, but also just for the last two months of the season, if you're the Giants, you want to try the hardest you can to avoid a, a one-game plan. If you're the Padres, you want to avoid having to go up against Kevin Gaussman in a wild card game. So I think even though we do see the stratification in the National League too, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll have a quiet deadline among those teams because they're angling to beat each other in the three-man race to the top of the National League. So do you think that matters much? That was kind of why they added the wild card in the first place is to incentivize teams to keep pushing even if they're insured of a wild card spot already. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I was getting at with the, the question I just asked Ben, but the... I mean, the problem with the, the like, obviously that incentive is huge. You know, if I, I, you mentioned the Giants, I, if I were, if I personally were the San Francisco Giant, Giants organization, um, I would definitely be looking at an extra move. Although the way that they pulled star quality performance out of, out of the very earth this season, maybe they don't need to, maybe they've got, you know, another Mike Estremski or Steven Duggar, uh, just lying in the parking lot somewhere. But the the thing about the the wild card like why this was was brought in you know i think it was brought in more to create that one day tv spectacle cuz like this line happens every single year and this is sort of you know when we're talking about expanding the uh the nfl playoffs or march madness like to to get a, an extra bubble team in well like that just moves the bubble um, so it, you know, and, and some, you know, sometimes in this case, it seemed, or this year, it seems like there are 10 good teams. Um, 
And so, you know, sometimes there are 14, sometimes there are six, uh, and that's different from, from year to year. So, you know, I, I hope that this, like Ben says, sort of clarifies the, uh, you know, the buyer seller decision for some of those, you know, team like the Cubs or the, the twins that, um, has a lot of, of pending free agents and might be try you know, might try to restock the farm system. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that that if there is peril, yeah, I don't know. I think the the Yankees have another run in them. I think the Blue Jays have another run in them. But apart from that, like this is going to be where the the trade deadline drama comes from as teams trying to to get out of that one game wild card. Yeah, along the lines of what you're saying with the playoff picture already seeming somewhat set, there are nine teams right now that have playoff odds over 50%, according to FanCrafts, and most of them are way, way over 50%. And I'm having a hard time looking at any of these teams and thinking they're going to fall out of it, which obviously the seeding matters and division or wildcard matters, but... I don't know that I buy any of these teams as, yeah, they're going to fall apart. They're going to crater completely. They're going to come back to the pack so much that they're just going to end up out of it, in which case then really you're just talking about who's going to end up in that last spot. Will it be the A's or the Yankees or the Blue Jays or, you know, whoever? It's like, you know, Dodgers, White Sox, Astros, Giants, Padres, Red Sox, Brewers, Mets, Rays. Does any of these teams strike you as unsustainable? Like there are a couple there that I think maybe have been a bit over their heads and and won't play up to the same level from here on out, but they've already banked enough wins that it would just be tough for them to squander that. Like the the Brewers or, or the maybe the Mets, I could see swooning, but the other half of that question is somebody needs to catch them. Yeah. And I don't know who that team is from those divisions. You said nine teams are over 50%. Who's out? Uh, of the what's the one team or no wait there are 10 teams that make the playoffs yes jesus <laughs> uh mike you mentioned the brewers and i was going to toss out uh, a, a team we haven't talked about yet is the reds and i think the reds have some moves to make they're not a young team and they've been fairly proactive over the last couple off seasons yes they salary dumped rysel iglesias but they've added nick cassianos jesse winkers having an awesome season joey vato's not getting any younger. And I think the Brewers are potentially catchable. They have the great trifecta at the top of the rotation. And I, I really think Craig Council is a great manager to eke out all the the talent he can from his team. But the Brewers do not have a good offense. They have a 90 team-wide WRC+, plus, which means they're 10% below average. Every team in that range or worse is well out of the playoff picture. Uh, meanwhile, Cincinnati has one of the better offenses in baseball. Uh, so I think Cincinnati, who is, I believe, four games out right now, uh, if they have a pitching upgrade, potentially, you know, the fifth starter spot there is pretty weak. Jeff Hoffman, um, I think Cincinnati could be a team to sneak in, especially if they have a strong start to the half. And that would add excitement in at least one of the division races going forward. Yeah, and that, that Cincinnati rotation is not bad. Like, you know, Luis Castillo's back from, you know, he had a really, really ugly first two months of the season. Um, Wade Miley's pitching really well. Like, the that, I don't know, I, I think the Brewers right now, like, if you're looking at a, a playoff rotation, just like four guys, probably have the best one in the National League right now. But it's not like the the Reds are out here like the 2000 Rangers, you know, they're, they're not scoring eight runs a game and giving up seven. You know, I, I think they could be dangerous and it would just be nice to see them. You know, they've been there, thereabouts for like five years. And, and so, um, yeah, I definitely wouldn't complain if, if they got over the hump, you know, I know they were in last year and played the, one of the weirdest, uh, best of three series that, that you could imagine against Atlanta last year. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing them make a run either. Uh, one name that I'm interested to see one, if he goes and two, where is Chris Bryant, uh, who's going to be a free agent at the end of the season. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned this earlier in the season, he fits everywhere. Um, and just because of his positional flexibility, because of, of the different ways he can impact the game, it will be so bizarre to see him in another team's uniform. But, you know, we know the Mets have been sniffing around. There have been reports and denials and counter reports and, and stuff this week. Um, does he move? I think almost certainly, given what Ben said earlier about the Cubs wanting to sell everyone 
and they have a bunch of free agents after the season. And I think indications are they would probably be more likely to try to retain someone like Javi Baez and re-sign him than Bryant. So I would be pretty surprised if Bryant doesn't move at this point. The Mets are one obvious destination, but because of his positional versatility, he can fit with basically any team that still needs a bat. So that's what every team except Houston uh, still needs a bat. So I could see Bryant going pretty much anywhere. I think you said Houston, like I'd rather have Chris Bryant center field than Miles Straw. That's true. Um, I think one uh, destination that almost certainly will not happen given the politics involved, but would be wildly fun is Bryant to the White Sox who need lineup upgrades given all the injuries they've had. Uh, Bryant would be a great fit uh, on the south side of Chicago, but I find it kind of hard to believe the Cubs would do that. Yeah, as you said, it's rare to have someone who has a, a bat of the caliber of Bryant who also plays all of those positions. <laughs> there just aren't a lot of players like that. The Dodgers have had some. Ben Zobrist was the go-to example for years. But even just this season, he has played every outfield position. He's played both infield corners, and he's done that for years and pretty capably, too, for a big guy and a slugger. So as you said, it is pretty easy to find a fit in theory. Back in May, I I wrote a post called the 10 most interesting Chris Bryant trade destinations. Zach just mentioned number one, the White Sox. I'm going to chuck out number three, a team that is, for reasons passing understanding, still very much in the playoff race, Seattle Mariners. It will never happen, but I would love to see them just like trade for him and then just see what happens. And if things go well, like they have a feel good run, like they don't even have to make the playoffs to, to really, you know, push the, the idea that they're in contention. Then, you know, after this season, maybe you re-sign him, make him the, the Kyle Seeger replacement. Like, I think that would be extremely cool if it happened. If that happens, you got to bring back the Jerry DePoto song on the podcast. Yes, we will unretire. We will bring that song back from from AJ Preller. AJ Preller <laughs> will trade it back to Jerry DePoto. One other name I wanted to mention, just because I think he could fit in a lot of really interesting places, and he's a player I think we all love, is Joey Gallo. Who oh, he's is too big for... to fit in a lot. Of, you can't <laughs> fit him in a lot of interesting places. He's much too but, large. Yeah. Everybody savor the moment. It was a good Bauman joke on the podcast. (laughs) Write this date down. (laughs) Speaking of big sluggers who move a lot better than uh, that description would suggest, Joey Gallo, who's a great defender, he runs well, and he's hitting uh, 400 on base, 520 slugging this year, which leads to a 153 WRC+. He's obviously been on fire over the last month, at least not counting the home run derby, which was something of a disappointment. Uh, But Joey Gallo is signed for another year after this one. So you'd be getting him for two pennant races, essentially. And I think Texas is motivated to move him given where they are in the standings. There have been reports that the Padres are interested in him. There's an AJ Preller connection there. I would love to see Joey Gallo join the, the lineup that I already think is the most fun in baseball. So that's exciting for me personally. But I think Gallo will probably be on the move to and could be a difference maker up with Chris Bryan or Trevor Story or the names that we've already been talking about for months. All right. That's man, Joey Gallo on the Padres. That would be fun. All right. Imagine yeah, imagine a middle of the order with Tatis, Machado, and Gallo. They'd have to You'd get watch a, every game. They'd have to get a bigger swag chain for somebody Gallo's size. Um all right. Let's wrap up the show as we usually do and haven't for a little while now, but let's go to the unnamed weekend preview segment and i'm going first because i think that there's a clear number one best series this weekend and i want to take it before anybody else does houston at the chicago white Sox. this is red Sox yankees for real america this is i think the two best teams in the american league right now uh Sunday, we get the Framber Valdez versus Carlos Rodon matchup, which once again pits Ben and me against each other. Ben reeling from his loss to Zach in the first round of the the home run derby. Um, Maybe there's a chance for redemption there. Yeah. Didn't the the last Framber Valdez matchup with our guys go well for me, I think? Was it Lancelin? I think that turned out to to, be in my favor. But 
I will take, uh, that's a good pick. I mean, those are probably the, the two best teams in the league, certainly in terms of results, but I'll go with the Brewers and the Reds who are playing each other again. So if you haven't had enough Brewers Reds in the last week or so, they've got more for you. These two teams played entering the All-Star break and now they're playing again, exiting the All-Star break. And we were just talking about how this is a decent race, how the Reds are still in this thing. And they took three out of four from the Brewers coming into the break. So if they were to sweep again here, they would essentially erase their deficit in the NL Central. So this is actually a pretty important series. And the series I'm interested in, I'm not going to see Yankees Red Sox, although that's the obvious one on all the the national channels is Seattle versus the Angels, because the Angels are one of those teams hovering behind Oakland. We all would love for the Angels to stick in the race until Trout gets back, have some exciting September baseball for once. And the Mariners are still in the race, even though they have a run differential well, well below any other team, as you pointed out in your power rankings this week, Mike. They have a negative 50 oh, run differential. Yeah, I read everything you write. <laughs> but the <laughs> the Mariners have a negative 50 run differential, but they are 9-1 and one in extra inning games, 19-8 and eight in one-run games. I can't anticipate that continuing, but they're going up against the Angels this week, and both of those teams, again, within kind of striking distance of the A's, but maybe only one of them will be after this weekend. They got the big guns going Saturday and Sunday. You say Kikuchi and Logan Gilbert on the mound for Seattle. So the if nothing else, the pitching should be pretty fun. All right. Now that we've previewed the the weekend, it's time to, to wrap up and go home. Uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Uh, be sure to follow us on Spotify, where you can get our shows every Friday and baseball barbecue every Tuesday. Uh, where cycling enthusiast Jake Mintz is currently making good on his uh, ridiculous Tony La Russa bet. Um, so be sure to, to follow that as well. Um, thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner and Mike Wargon for producing today's show. Thanks to Shohei Otani, Jock Peterson, and Chris Bryan for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action and we'll see you next time.